Well, now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. In our passage, Paul begins his formal defense of the gospel, which he'll carry out throughout the rest of the letter of Galatians. And the raging question of Galatians, as we will see this morning, is what is the gospel? We cannot possibly consider the gospel in its entirety this morning. We can't consider it because it's too complex, and yet it's also a simple message. And so while we can't spend this sermon looking at it in all of its parts, we will try to understand just one. As we continue our way through the epistle to the Galatians, we will try to understand more and more of the various blessings of the gospel. The passage before us, though, has one main goal. Paul has one point he's trying to make. There is only one gospel. He doesn't spell it out in a lot of detail. He doesn't give us all the points. Rather, he's just got one point to make. There's one gospel. But even here, what we will see as he makes this point is that the glories of the gospel cannot help but be proclaimed. All right, Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10. Give now your ears to the reading of the word of the Lord. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this letter from Paul. We ask, Lord, that you would now take away the busy distractions of this world from our hearts, that we would give our minds to your word, that we would contemplate your word and meditate on it. Reveal to us what you would have for us through your Holy Spirit and help us to grow and love Christ more and more. For in him alone is our salvation. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I imagine part of your nighttime routine involves walking around your house, closing all your windows and doors, locking those doors, closing your blinds and setting the alarm. You fear someone breaking into your house and ruining the peace of your home. If you've ever experienced a break-in or had someone shake and knock at your door, shake the door handle and knock at your door late at night, you don't quickly forget that. You remain on guard, concerned that someone might try to come in. I wonder how many of us, though, spend time considering whether the doors of our heart is locked, are locked. Our house is easy. We see the deadbolt on the door, and we can say, yes, it's locked. No, it's not. We can't see our hearts. And yet our hearts are ever listening, ever considering the world outside themselves. How careful are we to keep our hearts from intruders? Paul's concern in our passage is that the Galatians have been entertaining a false gospel. The Galatians aren't just face facing mere exposure. It's not that they're just going out and hearing people say things. Rather, they've unlocked the door to their church's heart without a fight. 
Intruders have come in, and their hearts are listening without discerning what they're hearing. Their hearts are now in a battle over what is the gospel. The Galatians have listened to the wrong message and have forgotten God's grace in Christ. God's grace has been diluted by what they are hearing. Every day we're exposed from our culture and government, from false religions and religious sects, from advertisers and celebrity personalities, or even from friends and family, to false gospels. It's no, it's no laughing matter here. We have much to be concerned about. What our passage here today is trying to get at is this. Is, is your heart secured against an intruder? Because there are competing messages for our hearts. And because there are competing messages for our hearts, we must guard our hearts with the grace of Christ. Let me say that again. Because there are competing messages for our hearts, we must guard our hearts with the grace of Christ. So I want us to consider this in two points this morning, uh, this afternoon. Two points. The first is the threat of false gospels. Paul is, is urgent in our text. So let's turn to our text. Paul's urgent here. He begins, I am astonished. I am astonished. Have you ever answered the phone and the person who's calling you immediately launches into their story or their question or their complaint? My, my little sister once answered the phone and a young lady began speaking to her. Five to ten minutes later, my little sister finally says, I think you want to speak with Laura, my older sister. Husbands and wives, you do this too, don't you? You know Schnookums loves you. And so instead of saying, how's your day, honey? You say, I need laundry detergent for the next load. Right? This is what we do. We drop with pleasantries when there's a need. It's hard to determine someone's tone from a text. It's hard to know what they're saying. You get text messages and emails all the time. You have no idea what their tone is. Are they sarcastic or are they serious? Are they being playful or are they being mean? Are they angry or are they excited? Commentators here think Paul is either being pastoral or angry. In Galatians 6.1, Paul says that you who are spiritual should restore any brother who's caught in a transgression with gentleness. But at the same time, he uses here in this passage this word, cursed. And so the commentators see this and say, Paul is angry. He's surprised. He's shocked. In all of Paul's letters but Galatians, Paul begins with a prayer of thanksgiving or blessing for how the gospel is at work in the people's lives. But here Paul begins with a gospel curse. In the ancient world, blessings and curses were something measurable. They weren't just saying, bless you after you sneeze and hoping someone has health. Rather, the blessed had taller crops. The blessed had bigger families. They had fewer calamities in life. And a curse was not merely foul language. Rather, it was a prayer that God would show no mercy to the person. The cursed were to experience suffering upon suffering upon suffering. But here in our passage, cursed means something worse. When you read in the Old Testament, particularly in the histories, and especially Joshua, where you read that the people of Canaan or the things of Canaan were devoted to destruction, the Hebrew word there is translated into the Greek with the word anathema. 
And if you've ever read some good Roman Catholic literature, you would read that word anathema all over the place. Anathema is translated into the English with the word cursed. Paul is not calling merely for the shunning of people, nor is he calling for their excommunication. He is warning and saying, those who preach a false gospel are condemned to hell. He's not sugarcoating anything here. There's no yellow caution tape. It's a great flashing warning sign saying, beware, beware, beware. Tampering with the gospel is no trifling matter. And so Paul says in, in Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished. He's surprised, shocked. He's in utter disbelief at what he has heard about the Galatian churches. He recently established churches and elders in Pisidian Antioch and Lystra and Iconium and Derbe, as we learn in Acts 13 through 14. But since he left, intruders have come. They've broken in. And now the Galatians, as he says in 1.6, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to another gospel. The word desertion here has its origins in, in military terminology. It doesn't refer to a soldier who's gone AWOL, who's left the, the military and you can't find him. It refers to a traitor, to a turncoat, someone who has betrayed his army, his commanding officer. And in Paul's day, the word had gained the meaning someone who abandons their faith, someone who apostatizes. And if you notice what Paul says is they are so quickly deserting, I-N-G, it's an ongoing thing. The Galatians have not yet apostatized, but they're believing a false gospel and are going in that direction. Paul is warning them, unless they repent, they will abandon him who called them in the grace of Christ. They will abandon him. Him here refers to God the Father. It doesn't refer to Paul. Look down, for instance, at verse 115. Paul writes here, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, so he being the Father, and who called me by his grace. Here we see that same word, called. Paul has been called, he says. And so have the churches. The Father calls his people in grace to salvation. The you here in this, ver in this verse is a plural. It's like y'all, or the King James ye, in case you ever carry around your King James with you. While God calls each believer individually, God also calls the entire church. Every Christian belongs to Christ's body. There is no believer who is an island. And as commanded in Hebrews 3, when we're faced with something like this, we are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that we would not fall away and not have hardened hearts. The churches should not fall away, and we must encourage one another because of the messages we hear day in and day out from the world around us. Apostasy is not necessarily an individual act. It's much more frightening here in Galatians. And the Galatians are deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ for another gospel. We'll return to this phrase, the grace of Christ, in a little bit, but we see that they're turning for another gospel. And as Paul clarifies in 17, he says, not that there is another one. There isn't actually an alternative gospel. Rather, it's a false gospel they're turning to. He clarifies it's a deficient, a corrupted, a perverted, a twisted or distorted gospel. There are those who want to distort the gospel of Christ, he says. Paul's concern is not about his ministry. The Judaizers here are trying to say, Paul is not a good minister. Just abandon Paul. De don't deal with him. He's teaching you bad stuff. 
But Paul says it's not about his ministry he's concerned. Rather, he's concerned about the church's faith. The Galatians aren't being persecuted. They're not at threat of, of turning away for that reason. Rather, intruders are damaging their faith. They've broken in. Unlike Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, where Paul uh, uh, says, you know, I'm thankful for, for ministers of Christ who teach Christ even from false motivations because then Christ is still proclaimed. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that even though he's thankful for those sinful preachers, he's saying the Judaizers, though they be saying Christ's name, are not preaching Christ. There are these Jewish Christians who are likely former Pharisees are not preaching Christ. To distort, in verse 1-7, means to turn upside down. The Judaizers only appear to really be teaching two things if you were to keep reading through Galatians. Circumcision and Jewish holy days. And you think, okay, well, circumcision's commanded in the Old Testament. The holy days are commanded in the Old Testament. Doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. But even these two seemingly small things, only two points, is turning the grace and gospel of Christ upside down, Paul says. This intrusion, then, is not a small intrusion. They're not just breaking in and taking a cookie out of the, out of the basket. They're breaking in and turning the house upside down. They're dumping the drawers out. They're flipping the furniture over. They're preaching Christ's name, but they're not preaching Christ. And as Paul says in Romans 11, as we know, the Judaizers are teaching a salvation by works, justification by works, which is what Paul hammers all throughout this letter. And Paul says in Romans 11 that, it, but if salvation is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The heretical gospel is troubling. They're turning the gospel upside down, and they are troubling the Christians in Galatia. To trouble here means to confuse. It means to throw someone into an emotional or spiritual turmoil. They don't have any peace in what the, Gala uh, the Judaizers are teaching. They are confused. And what we see as this letter continues is that where there's confusion, godliness is lost. When the gospel is lost, godliness is lost. He turns in Galatians 5 to talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And where godliness is lost, sin increases, and we quickly abandon the faith. Okay, just to try to get you to see the urgency here, St. John Chrysostom, a 4th century minister in Rome, not in Rome, but in the Roman Empire, imagined Paul saying, how is it your seducers need not even time for their designs, but the first approaches suffice for your overthrow and capture? And what excuse can you have? Paul's shocked. The Christians didn't endure at all. They didn't discern at all. Every day our hearts are in a spiritual fight. It may not always feel like that, but you are. You are in a fight every day for your heart. False gospels, like fiery bullets, are whizzing past your heart, whether you realize it or not. Our hearts are in danger, and our enemy has had thousands of years of target practice aiming at the bullseye of your heart. He knows how to craft a lie that can bypass all of your heart's personal defenses. Are you watching your heart? Are you protecting it? Are you guarding it? We're too easily tempted and bamboozled. We're too easily overwhelmed by what the world is saying. 
And as the Galatians would show us, we're too quick to desert the gospel of Christ. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And our hearts are listening to the world around us. It's not just that the the world's trying to break in and the enemy's trying to pierce our heart. Our hearts are listening to the world around us. They're incorporating what they hear. Who has your heart's ear? Whom are you listening to? Consider the news you hear, or the media you digest, the books you read. What do they say man's problem is? What do they say the solution is? What don't they say? The problem is, again, that our hearts are not just listening to the world around us. Our hearts are not just listening, they're also speaking. Our hearts speak. And even if we stopped listening to the world around us, even if we shut ourselves up in a monastery and in a cloister or somewhere out in the desert, our hearts can still imagine and lead us astray. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What silent sermons are you preaching to yourself day in and day out? What are you speaking to your heart? A man raised by angry parents might say of his anger that this is just the way that I am. I was born this way. It's in my blood. So he sins all the more boldly. A woman defiled by an attacker begins to feel great shame and is concerned that she's unclean. And as she reflects on this notion of being unclean, she thinks that she's been attacked because she actually is unclean. So she turns to filthy living. Both this man and this woman believe lies, and they live by them. How much worse if we distort the gospel and believe a false one? After you've sinned, how often do you think to yourself and say, I've sinned because I haven't been doing my devotions for the past week. Therefore, I'm going to pray and read my Bible more, and then God will accept me. Then he will accept me. Salvation by devotions. This is not the gospel of Christ. We fall into these traps because we don't understand the depth of our own sin. Like the world around us, we want to soften our sin. We want to make it something we can handle. We don't believe our sin really has earned us death. We believe it's something much simpler than that, that we can work for our righteousness, that we can be pleasing to God by merely doing nice things for others. We fall into this trap because we don't believe the gospel of Christ is the only gospel. We reject its exclusivity. But if Christ is not the only way to God, then Christ is a liar, and we are not saved by grace alone. Brothers and sisters, we fall into this trap because we fear man. Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man... I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is saying that he, when he was a Pharisee, was trying to please man. And he was saying, if I was still that, then I would not be a servant of Christ. The Judaizers, we learn in in Galatians 6, verse 12, we're told that by Paul, it is those Judaizers who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. The Judaizers taught their gospel to avoid persecution for Christ. 
We see something similar in John 12, 42, where we learn that some of the Jews believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't speak up because they didn't want to be ejected from the synagogues. When we are ashamed of the gospel of Christ, when we fear rejection, we distort the gospel. But salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We have to turn to him and we have to look to him. It's not something we can do. It's not something we can conjure up. So as we're considering our hearts this day, this Reformation Sunday, what temptations are you facing in your life, perhaps even today, that are drawing you away from Christ, that are making you think, maybe there's another way. Or maybe Christ doesn't, can't save me. Maybe his grace isn't sufficient for me. What false gospels are being preached to you? What false gospels are around you? We must beware of turning to an upside-down gospel. We must beware of abandoning Christ. Well, this is our first point, the threat of false gospels. Our hearts are exposed. Our hearts are prone to wander. But what is the true gospel? Like I said, Paul doesn't spell out what the true gospel is. He just says, I'm so surprised you're deserting it. What is the true gospel? How did the Judaizers turn it upside down? What were they turning upside down? So that's our second point. What is the blessing of the true gospel or the blessing of the true gospel? Let's go back to Galatians 1.6. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We said we were going to come back and look at this phrase, in the grace of Christ. What is the grace of Christ? Paul doesn't define it here. We could backtrack to Galatians 1.4 and maybe pull some stuff out of there, but he doesn't say the grace of Christ is this. Rather, he somewhat equates it with this phrase, the gospel of Christ. Whatever the gospel of Christ is, is about the grace of Christ. And Paul says he preached the grace of Christ to the Galatians, and the Father called the Galatian churches through Christ, in the grace of Christ, through Paul's preaching. Well, we must listen for what the Father is speaking through Christ in his gospel. It is the Father's gospel. It's not Paul's gospel. Paul's just a messenger. To avoid the trouble the Galatians were having when they were ensnared by these false teachers, we must know what the true gospel is. What is the gospel of Christ? I want to break the gospel of Christ down for us into three parts because Paul is assuming here that his readers know it. Where does Paul get his gospel from? The Greek word for gospel, as I'm sure you have heard a few times, means good news. To proclaim the gospel is to share good news. It's a rather generic kind of term. It's not something specifically Christian. This term, good news, shows up in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. I'm going to read two verses here for us. So we see this idea of good news here in the Old Testament. So Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. 
you might recognize this passage from Luke 4, where Jesus preaches it in his own hometown, and then he is summarily rejected when he says he's fulfilled it. This passage tells us that God would be sending the Messiah, the Messiah is the one speaking here in this passage, through the prophet Isaiah, that he is going to come and proclaim good news. God would send his people to deliver the people, to deliver his people, and this would be the good news. Deliverance was to come. Jews who lived after the exile looked for God's kingdom, not to, uh, not to just fix their problems, but to remove all their troubles. The Jewish literature of the day, this would be in the hundreds of years prior to Christ, that the Jews thought the world had been lost to the kingdom of darkness. They were cynical. They were in despair over the world. It was beyond recovery. And the only thing that was going to fix it was to do away with the old age, as Galatians 1 4 says, the present evil age. To do away with it and to usher in the new age. They wanted to see the new age come. Down through the New Testament, we see this idea of looking for God's kingdom. We learn, in, for instance, in Mark 15 and in Luke 23, that a Pharisee named Joseph of Arimathea was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. In many ancient contexts, a gospel was news of a victorious king bringing blessing to his people. A Roman coin that we've found described Augustus Caesar as mankind's savior and God, whose birth was for the world the beginning of the gospels, which have gone forth because of him. There were many good news, items of good news, to be proclaimed among the people because of Caesar Augustus. When John the Baptist, for instance, began preaching, he said in, in Matthew 3.1, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John, fulfilling Isaiah 40, another passage where we see this idea of good news, heralded the coming of the kingdom. The coming of the kingdom. And in Mark 1.15, when Jesus begins his ministry, he preaches, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says in his ministry, the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. So what is this kingdom? The Jews sought it. Jesus preached it. The kingdom is synonymous with the coming of the new age, with the coming age. It's the new age when everything would be made right. The kingdom of darkness would be overthrown. To modify theologian Graham Goldsworthy's definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. Again, we see this idea in Galatians 1.4. Galatians 1.4, where we're told that Jesus was, uh, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. When the kingdom comes, the new age begins. The coming of the kingdom is the new age, and God's people are delivered from the present evil age. So the first part of the gospel is to proclaim the kingdom of God has come and the new age has begun. The second part of our, our gospel is a little bit uh, derivative of this. Every kingdom needs a king. Can't have a kingdom without a king. And the Jews expected that when God's king would come, there would be a complete victory. You always hear about the Jewish zealots of the day. They were religious warriors who thought they could bring in God's kingdom through political action. But they weren't right. 
Neither were the Jewish apocalyptics who thought there would be some kind of spiritual coming of things. Rather, something else happens. Jesus is incarnate, and he lives a perfect life, and then he dies and rises again from the dead. Jesus was not the delivering king the people expected. We see this in the road to Emmaus, where Jesus' disciples tell him that they, they were disappointed because they thought that Jesus was, was the guy. They thought the kingdom was to come through him. Contrary to Jewish expectation, Jesus had to suffer. And the new age was not going to wipe out everything, but it was going to begin like leaven working its way through dough. Here, then, is the second part of our gospel, to announce the exaltation and reign of the Son of David, Jesus Christ. So two parts so far, the kingdom and the king. These are what we might call the foundation of the gospel. Without these, there is no good news. You need the king, and you need his kingdom. Part three, though, is what we might call the invitation. It's the last part of our gospel. Let's consider several New Testament texts. Let's turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and we'll look at just a few verses here, verses 46 through 47. Here Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Christ discusses his death and resurrection, we might call part one and part two of the gospel. And then he says, this is now what you are to proclaim among the people because these things are true. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the apostles were faithful to what Christ had told them. They were faithful to this gospel message. If you turn to Acts 2, we'll read a few verses here. Acts 2, and we'll look at verses 36 through 41. The apostles were preaching. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches and says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Jesus said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So see how Peter preaches here. He, in the end, he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's talking about the old age. Save yourselves from the sinful age. And, he's go and working our way backwards, see what he says he said in 36. You crucified Christ, and God has made him both Lord and Christ. And he says, therefore, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus' name. So notice then the apostles' pattern. They proclaim Christ was wrongly crucified, now exalted as king, and therefore, Christ brings his peoples the blessings of granting them repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2.39, the apostles call this God's promise given to those whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So putting these three things together, proclaiming the gospel means to announce the arrival of the kingdom, the arrival of that new age, the coming of the king and his exaltation, the enthronement of Christ, and to extend the king's offer 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gateway to God's promised blessings, we might say, is forgiveness of sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But in Galatians, Paul actually doesn't discuss forgiveness of sins almost at all. You could go through the rest of this letter, and the only place he seems to talk about it is Galatians 1.4, where he also is the only place he mentions Christ's resurrection. What is Paul doing? Why does he spend all his time talking about justification by faith if all the other apostles and Jesus are talking about forgiveness of sins? What's going on? How did Paul miss this? How do we relate these ideas? What we need to see, as we will find as we go through, further through Galatians, is that God promised Abraham blessing. And what we learn in, back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 is that Abraham believed God's promises. And because Abraham believed God's promises by faith, God gave him righteousness. He was accounted righteous by his faith, not by works. To be justified, as we talked about last time, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to have no sins, or to at least be counted as being sinless, and to be perfectly righteous. To be justified, we must be without sin. And that means that if Abraham received God's blessing and was righteous, God forgave Abraham's sin. The question is, how do we get God's blessing then? How do we get forgiveness for sins? How do we enter God's kingdom? How do we enter the new age of blessing? Forgiveness is key because we cannot repay sins by works. Jews thought that if you just had more good works than bad works, you'd be able to enter into the kingdom. And Paul is saying, no, that doesn't work because you still have sins. You must be forgiven. And forgiveness comes by grace alone. This is why the Judaizers' gospel was ineffective, why it was turning the gospel upside down, why it was producing confusion and trouble among the Galatian believers. They taught the solution for sins was works, that we could be righteous by works, even a combination, a mixture of faith and works. Maybe if we just have Jesus somehow in the beginning, but then we work for the rest of it. But Paul says we cannot work for our salvation, for righteousness, because of our sins. To do so is like trying to clean yourself with a dirty rag. You only get dirtier. We need someone perfect to come and cleanse us. And Jesus, he never sinned. He was perfectly righteous. He is able to come and clean us. Jesus' death was not merely a tragedy, as we read in Acts 2. It inaugurates the kingdom. And Jesus is enthroned, exalted by the Father, and he extends his blessing through that. His death was a sacrifice that enables us to be forgiven. Jesus died for the sins of his people. And when he rises from the dead, the Father exalts him as Lord and Savior and awards him the kingdom of God. And he opens its gates and ushers his people to come in through repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So now as Jesus distributes his blessings to the people, namely to enter the kingdom of God by forgiving sins, we can come and know the Father. This is why in Galatians 1, 8 through 9, Paul talks that if an apostle, even himself, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
In Galatians 3.19, we learn the Mosaic Covenant was put in place by angels. It's not uncommon throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, for instance, in Revelation, to see angels bringing a message from God, a message from heaven, and the people were to listen to them. But Paul says that if their message contradicts what I've preached to you, if I should contradict it, as he points out Peter does in Acts 2, he says, then let them be accursed. The gospel is not Paul's gospel. It is God's gospel. God is the one who speaks it. God is the one who invites people, who calls people to come to him in the grace of Christ. And as surely as God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so God's gospel is unchanging. So this then is the gospel the kingdom, the king, and the king's blessing of forgiveness. It's entry into the kingdom. This is what you can share with your friends when you wonder, how do I share with them the gospel? They need to know there is hope that this world is not the solution to their problems, but that a reigning king has come and established his kingdom and invites all to come in through repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is what the world needs to hear. This is the way of salvation. This is how we protect our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. We must be vigilant against upside-down gospels. To give an exhaustive list of all the false gospels that are out there would be too time-consuming. You'd get hungry and die of starvation before we finish. We must instead know the true gospel, and we must meditate on it and compare any and every other message against it. We must meditate on it and rehearse it regularly. Ephesians 6 commands us to put on the whole armor of God with the blessings of the gospel. It's the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness by faith. It's the belt of truth, the truth of the gospel, the shoes of the readiness of the peace of the gospel. This is what we must do. We must guard and protect our hearts against all the flaming darts of the evil with the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. So let me encourage you to begin thinking, how will I guard my heart? How will I put on the armor of God each day to protect my heart from the false gospels? How can you make the gospel part of your daily meditation? Let me give you some examples that you might consider. In the Old Testament, prayers were symbolized by the incense being raised up in the temple. It was smoke. So you might take a smoke break at work and go pray for five minutes. If you are musically inclined, take time to write a hymn of praise to God for his gospel. Pick a verse that means much to you and elaborate on it. Talk about it. Praise God for his saving work in your life. Or perhaps choose a hymn to memorize so you can sing it on your commute. Memorize or invest in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, particularly questions 19 through 38 and 84 through 98. These questions focus on God's salvation and what it means to be saved by faith and how we grow in that grace. If you're a grandparent and you're wondering, what else can I do for my grandchildren besides putting money in their bank account? Invest in them by teaching them these questions. Teach them the faith. Raise them up in the nourishment and admonition of the Lord. And from that, they will reap a lifetime of gospel joy and benefit. 
when you pray during the church's Friday night prayer time, or even in your personal devotions. Linger in the gospel. Praise God for the glories of the gospel of Christ. There is no lack of ways for us to meditate on the gospel. By meditating on it, we come to know all the riches, all the hidden treasures of Christ. As Colossians 2 says, in Christ are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Redeem the time, as Colossians 4, 5 says in King James. Redeem your time by meditating on the gospel. Luther described his conversion as a dramatic event. Perhaps you've heard the story. He reads Romans 1.17 that God justifies by faith. And he realizes this and he comes and he says, let there be a reformation. But in the 19th century, a manuscript of Luther's work on Romans was discovered in the Vatican Library from the years before the Reformation, 1515 and 1516. Rather than a dramatic turn, what we see in, this, in his commentary is that there was a slow realization on Luther's part as he slowly worked his way through the text. And he came to understand the gospel over a period of four to five years. And on the other side, he was absolutely certain of his position, and he was bold for the gospel. He opposed the empire and the Roman Catholic Church and all the various ways that his life were th was threatened throughout that time. He was in constant endangerment. And yet he knew he was guarded by faith in Christ, by faith in God's word and the community of the saints. In 1531, reflecting on Galatians, Luther wrote, Nevertheless, the doctrine of grace and salvation brings with it every benefit, both spiritual and physical, namely the forgiveness of sins, peace of heart, and eternal life. It also brings light and sound judgment about everything. It approves and supports civil government, the home, and every way of life that has been ordained and established by God. It eradicates all doctrines of error, sin, death, sedition, confusion, etc. In short, it uncovers all the works of the devil and opens to us the works of God. What madness is the world up to when it so bitterly hates this word, this gospel of eternal comfort, grace, salvation, and eternal life, and when it blasphemes and persecutes it with such satanic rage? The gospel became his peace. And the grace of Christ is our peace, our security, our assurance against all the false gospels, all the lies that the enemy throws at us, that the world concocts, that our heart speaks in silence. Cling by faith to the message of God's kingdom and God's king and the blessings of the king. Look to God and his word. Trust in the Father's grace through Christ and he will safeguard your heart from this day forth and forevermore. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us in the grace of Christ to repent of our sins and find forgiveness in the name of Christ. We confess that we have allowed the influence of the world to drown out your word. But you, Lord, are not silent. You have forgiven us even of our wrong beliefs. Father, may you speak to us in Christ and may we find not curse but blessing in his name. Save us, O Lord, from the lies of the enemy and wed us to yourself that we would never depart or wander from you. Keep us near your heart and may your spirit give us wisdom to discern good from evil and truth from lie. Your word is truth and in the truth there is peace. 
Help us to encourage each other that none of us would be hardened in our hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. And may we each run in faith the course you have set before us in sobering you glory. And we ask these things in the grace of Christ. Amen.